Welcome to the latest episode of Northern Spin Extra. My name's Michael Taylor. As always, I'm joined by Chris Maguire. In a second, we're going to hear from a very special guest. But first, a few thank yous. Chris? Hello, Michael. I'm super excited today by our very, very, very special guest. But we couldn't do this without our friends at What Media who produce our podcast and turn what we say into something that hopefully people find listenable. And our sponsors at Oscar Technology, without whom we simply couldn't produce our podcast. So thank you very much to What Media and to Oscar Technology. But today's guest is a woman who has, in one way or another, devoted 20 years of her life to the Northern Powerhouse, first in academia and then as a civil servant, a former head of Northern powerhouse she's now the chief economist and head of public sector at manchester tech firm red flag alert who i went to visit last week let's get to let's give her and let's give red flag alert a big northern spin welcome nicola headlam how are you i'm all right welcome nicola so nicola i'm super excited to speak to you because you were at the heart of government rubbing shoulders with ministers prime ministers and even US presidents. We're going to talk about the Northern Powerhouse and last week's autumn statement, but we're going to start by getting your insight on some of, some of the leading figures in the public eye. Am I right, on th- right in thinking that you once collared President Obama? I only told this story in the context of my entire early career being, <laughs> can I just catch you for a moment between meetings? Because as we all know, since the pandemic, I weep for the youth that yeah. can't build their network in that way. If you're on a Zoom call, the membership is fixed and there's none of that. Whereas in this example, which was at a UN conference, um, I was interested by whether it was true that the leader of the free world only had two suits and it's perfectly true. He had two suit jackets the entire time and he swapped between them and compare and contrast that with Michelle Obama who had to travel with three people. Otherwise she would have been, you know, laughed off social media for hair, makeup and fashion. What was he like? Barack Obama, isn't he? He's gorgeous. <laughs> he, is, okay. he is the most socially skilled person in, in the world. Yeah. I've um, heard people say similar about President Clinton, actually. Yeah, bit of that too, yeah. He's, you know, that, that sense that when you're speaking to him, you are, you are the only person in his universe. I've never in that spoken fleeting moment. directly to him, but I did shout across the street <laughs> about comedy terrorism and uh, okay. waved at Bill in Oxford. Okay. With my friend Tabitha. It was so, fun. Right. We're going from Barack Obama uh, to um, Boris Johnson, which is a seamless link. Um, pretty much your last act as a civil servant was to oversee Boris Johnson's speech at the Convention of the North Conference in Rotherham, which Michael attended in 2019. Now, I'm going to take you back. It's fair to say he didn't go down particularly well. What was your impression of the then Prime Minister Boris Johnson? Tumbleweed. <laughs> Um, well, I know that you're media junkies, so you read Sebastian Payne's piece in the paper about the last days of Boris over the weekend. Yeah, it's great. Um, frankly, that makes, makes, uh, that's uh, more flattering than I would go. Um, I should say, so one thing I was thinking on the way in, um, you like your northern spin. I don't do spin. I do evidence and data, which is why I do Red Flag Alert. Yeah, yeah. Best data in the business, yeah. boss. <laughs> Um, something that has bedeviled the Northern Powerhouse project and levelling up as well and all attempts in this space is that the conflation of regional policy and regional politics has been absolute, right? So um, I don't do regional politics. That's all about marginal seats and who's voting what way. But I'm completely committed to good regional policy. Now, 
the conf- there's a, say the con- I would say conflation. I'll say it again. The conflation of the two of those things has it is the root of some of the weirdness that we've seen in regional policy over the over the last few years because George Osborne was completely convinced by an analysis, which we all remember, which was rooted in it's quite sound economics, the work of uh, Jim O'Neill. Um, but he also twigs that it wasn't going to harm them to pick up a few northern seats because he knew for Tatton, as we all do, that there is a great quality of life for an, you know, a, a large number of people that aren't paying so much for their housing as they are in London. So, and when I was at the Heseltine Institute, Michael Heseltine explained this to me. The politics of city regions, which to me as a nerd is the right fix for trying to do evidence and policy work, and the politics of marginality, as in marginal seats, normally people a little bit on the edge of cities vote more conservative and people in the middle of cities, that urban issue, vote Labour, you end up with the city regional and the marginality questions merging together. And in the case of the Northern Powerhouse, they've merged together perfectly. Just for the benefit of our listeners, you are moving your fingers together and knitting them together. It doesn't work so well on a podcast, but basically what you're saying is that, you know, it brings everybody together. So, so... Well, no, it brings together things that should be separate. Okay. Because, so, so George Osborne was a master tactician in that he had an offer which was strong on policy but didn't cost too much, and it was dog-whistling to northern voters that detoxify the Tory brand, yeah. right? That's what he achieved. You know, Tommy Two Thumbs. Dogs yeah. are good and thumbs okay. are up. And he did so with the complicity, it's fair to say, of Labour leaders like Joe Anderson who was at the launch of the Northern Powerhouse, sat in the front row. Um, obviously, Sir Howard Bernstein was a civil servant, a local civil servant, not, but fully fully leaning in to the whole Northern Powerhouse, as, as was Richard Lease, because they would always be prepared to work with a Conservative government to achieve what mattered um, for, for their cities. Complicity something almost a bit dodgy, like they were collaborators. You know, but they have, they have to work for the benefit of their, where they live, don't exactly. they? Exactly. Where, so, where they rule. So Richard Lease... Uh, the best quote from Richard Lees, I don't know who gave him this line, I'm sure one of his extremely able officers. Mm. I fought the Tories through the 80s and I've got to tell you it doesn't work. He, right. he, didn't, he wasn't born to do deals with Conservative chancellors. The point is, and I think um, Mayor Burnham uh, has found this in the pandemic and others, um, yes, of course, Greater Manchester returning solely Labour MPs and solely Labour councillors have got, um, there's a political basis that he's coming from. But yeah, the, the, exactly. So the Mozzie speech at, um, so George Osborne's Mozzie speech in 2014, there wasn't a cigarette paper between the Northern leaders and George Osborne at that time. Yeah. When Howard Bernstein left, actually, Sir Howard Bernstein left, the, the tributes were led. There was a video tribute, wasn't there? From yeah. From um, from George Osborne. So 2019, we're in Rotherham. Sorry, so we've sorry, heard yes. the background. We've heard the background. There's a thousand people in the room. All the civic leaders, Michael's alluded to. They're all in the front row. All the mayors are in there. In fact, um, I think we also had uh, we had ex ministers in there as well. George Osborne delivers a speech. You have basically worked your socks off. David Blunkett was in the audience as well with his uh, dog. Bishops. There was bishops. Loads of them. You've worked your socks off. You've got bishops. You've got mayors. <laughs> All you need is Boris Johnson to deliver this speech about the Northern Powerhouse, pit some meat on the bone. Nicola, what happened next? It just wasn't in the right mood for it. I think is the only way I can understand it. Can you hear me? Um, he just, and we saw it when he was prime minister repeatedly, like there was bits on the news of him kind of being 
uh, like the Peppa Pig speech in yeah. Newcastle. He just... Completely winging it, wasn't he? He just... He, he did, well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to struggle for words because, as I say, on the organisational side, you're talking about months and months of work and really careful work. You said I was a civil servant. I think I, most of my colleagues would agree I was the worst civil servant there's ever been. It was a, was a one-year stint and I couldn't run away fast enough. Um, what was the reaction of the thousand-strong crowd to Boris Johnson's speech? So you, it's a dark hall, you remember, it was very dark. Yeah, it was called Magna, wasn't it? Magna. And, he, and he made this joke about um, the plural, the Latin of Magna. Being Magnus. His ice cream, yeah. Magnum. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> oh, no. So, so, so for lots of reasons, it was a dark, it looked like a Rolling Stones gig, right? It had yeah. like a foot, like, or maybe a spinal tap gig, as it, as it turned <laughs> out. You know, it was a big, big, dark barn with a thousand people in it. Um, there was heckling, there was a demo outside for um, EU. Um, it, it was kind of a, it was a very high, high kind of, you know, drama day. But yeah, all I can say is that the person that showed up was not the sort of, you hear about this amazingly socially skilled um, operator that people kind of adore. That guy did not show up that day. He was, he seemed very confused about what was happening, despite mm -hmm. it being... You know, you know, the prime minister doesn't have to go anywhere. He doesn't want to go. It doesn't matter who they are. You know, so, but he didn't have any substantive policy announcement to make. And then, for reasons obscure, and and again, the election had been called at that point because it was September for December. So you can again, the regional politics is kind of red in tooth and claw. But the regional policy point was, you know, okay, so this is your opportunity to make a substantive offer to the north of the magnitude of the. Of the, of the Osborne um, promise in 2014, and he just didn't do it. He just, for whatever reason, just, um, and he started sort of being rude about the mayors, which obviously there'd been a lot of us, please don't be rude about the mayors, you know, you were all in it together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for whatever yeah. reason, he was, he was, he started on Labour crushed the economy and all this. It was an absolute debacle of epic proportions. Yeah, I was at that event, and my, my most vivid recollection that, that sticks with me now, apart from the terrible joke about the Latin for ice cream, was um, he gaslighted the regional journalists who were asked questions. I, I presume it was purposeful that he didn't take questions from the national press, that he made the same mistake Liz Truss made, thinking that the local journalists never, would just be a soft touch. Never underestimate the regional press Absolutely. lobby. Absolutely. And so Jennifer Williams, who I have in the highest esteem, who's now at the Financial Times, then at the Manchester Evening News, asked about recipients of Towns Fund money. And the absolute glaring example is, you know, this is meant to be for hard up areas. And she used the example of Cheadle, which was a, a Lib Dem target seat that had been a Liberal Democrat seat before. Um, and it was in rec receipt of Towns Fund money on a priority list. And she went, sure, is that because it's a marginal seat? And he completely gaslighted her, didn't he? It, it, I mean, it was, it, was, uh, it was what it was. I mean, yes, just uh, smiles and hugs to the great Jennifer Williams, who is doing the same job for the FT that she did for MEN, and we're all richer for it. Anyway... It was so embarrassing. And, you know, despite being the kind of northern policy firmament, we are still English people, right? So yeah. we were embarrassed. Everyone was embarrassed. It was silent. It was silence as we kind of finished. And not because of any, like, intrinsic problem. It was actually, it was purely on the basis of what we'd had in front of us. It was, the, you know. Yeah. It's fair to say, though, Nicola, that he then went on and won a general election and obviously won loads of former Labour seats. He was gifted, in my view... 
with the weakest possible opponent. The story that I heard about that 2019 was that, and as somebody who cracks a few dad jokes, I'm, I'm used to tumbleweed moments. So he exits the stage, exits left, and then he comes around the back, he's talking to you, and you, it's like a funeral. It's like a funeral. You, can't, you could hear a pin drop. You could probably hear Michael Taylor's talking. That's, that's how quiet it was. And then, and then you want to say to him, this is an absolute dog's dinner, Boris. It's not works. And then Steph McGovern comes up on stage. Incidentally, she charges a lot more than me to host events, but that's probably because she's a lot better. And she makes a comment. She makes a comment about the fact that um, Boris Johnson was once, he once described David Cameron as a girly swat. <laughs> Uh, he dismissed him. It was like redacted notes and you could see it. And then she comes on stage and says something to the lines of, I am the original girly swap. Did you yeah. say that? Brilliant. And then <laughs> the whole crowd erupts. Boris Johnson's backstage and Boris Johnson says, see, they're laughing now. I think that was the main thing is that it was, it was it, you know, I wouldn't say that his strength was self-awareness. <laughs> and in general, people are aware when they're being laughed at or when they're being laughed with. And I just think as long, and I, it's a quite profound point, right? As long as there was noise and energy, he didn't care either way. Yeah. You know, I think, um, I think the tragedy of English politics, more or less since 2014-15, has been the, 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 la the lack of care people have been taking about other things that are the most important things that there are. So I was thinking again, um, you know, you saw on, on at the cenotaph the lineup of past prime ministers. You know, and you've got Gordon Brown, and you've got Tony Blair, and you've got John Major, and then you've got Cameron, uh, Boris Johnson, Theresa May. Uh, Let's trust. Let's trust. You needed to be reminded, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. And and I know, right? I know why you, as a as a political leader, you're presented with the cenotaph, right? Because it's the consequences of your decisions that lead to people losing their lives. And that is the most sort of, it's the, it's the most profound um, thing about that you do as a leader, as you say, right, well, we, you know, you lose people's lives. But if you just turned them 90 degrees to the COVID monuments on the South Bank mm. and said, you're responsible for that too. Since David Cameron, a lack of care for the British populace has been the root of what some people call a horrible kind of necropolitics under which some people's lives don't matter. But the point is, and you were trying to pin me down on whether I was some hideous Labour stooge, we'll come to that later. If you are not focused on the prosperity of your populace, then you don't deserve the name of a leader of anything, whether it's a business or the country. And my charge would be to that entire line from Cameron onwards, is that by allowing themselves the luxury of talking about things that do not matter and placing them above the um, household and, and place-based economic development of our nation by leaning in to peace, but not leaning into prosperity, this is the worst abrogation of leadership there has ever been in this country. We're gonna talk about Brexit in a minute. We are going to talk about that and the impact on the blue and blue attacks and the fact that we spent the last 10 years or the Conservative Party spent the last 10 years basically fighting with each other. Um, Michael, I know you want to ask about Jake Berry, don't you? Mm, yeah. Is Jake Berry an example of the kind of mediocrity that's risen to the top of the Tory party? If, if George Osborne was dead serious about the Northern Powerhouse for all the reasons for the conflation of politics and policy that you've very eloquently described, Nicola. And then under Theresa May 
the ball is thrown out of the back of the scrum for Jake Berry to pick up. Wasn't that in itself a symbol, really, of how they just didn't take it seriously as an agenda? Theresa May tried to get rid of it entirely. Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I, as you know, Jake was the minister that I was most directly I reported to for the whole time. Okay. I don't have him down as, as mediocre at all because he's much... What The thing about Jake is that he's a disruptor, right? As in, if he was working in tech, everyone would think he was Steve Jobs. It's just that in that, the Conservative Party of that time, um, again, I, I can't say it strongly enough, by, he's completely passionate about the Northern Agenda, by the way, which marks him out as weird for, for, that, for that Conservative Party, this Conservative Party. So he's really passionate. Um, he put enormous energy into trolling around the North. And for that, um, he needs credit, actually. No, he's a Northern MP. So, you know, he's going to be passionate for the North, isn't he? Well, not all of them are. I think my, my experience with Jake was, so his private office, I think I said this to you, you know, for his birthday, got him a mug that said, be more Jake, because he was seen as somebody that wanted things to happen. And he wasn't overly kind of, um, he wasn't going to be, he, he was only ever a junior minister, but he always kind of played big. And 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 actually, um, he was he was good as Northern Powerhouse Minister. So, I don't I don't recognise the mediocrity point. Okay, no, I'll, I'll, I'll completely take that. But what I am saying is, um, what the Northern Powerhouse effectively died on his watch. As, as, as an agenda, where, I mean, where is it now? Where is it in, well, um, in the whole Tory lexicon of priorities? Well, um, it died under the white paper that didn't get delivered by Simon Clark. He's so the, the MP for somewhere up Middlesbrough Way, isn't he? Somewhere up Middlesbrough Way, that's right. Yeah. So Simon Clark was Chief Secretary of the Treasury and with Gove, and the pair of them managed some cleverness, including things, boring, boring things that will never get in the papers, like cabinet subcommittees for economic development being reconvened and being co-chaired by Gove and Simon Clark from the Treasury, which actually would be your best hope, to be honest, of yeah. cross-governmental action for the North. So this is another thing, like, um, people don't understand that if the mechanisms don't exist and the, and the institutions don't exist, then you are only going to be dealing in flim-flam, you know? Yeah, it's just rhetoric, isn't it? So that's it. So, so actually, um, you know, building things both within our crazily centralised system and outside it, so the, we mourn the lack of regional infrastructure and all the rest of it. If you haven't got the institutions, you can't do the thinking and you can't do the work. And this is particularly salient in the context of the North because, apologies, is. I know you're looking at your script rather desperately, but... It's, it's not a script, it's an A-memoir, It's Nicola. not going to happen. So, so think about our problems with the Northern Powerhouse Rail, right? Yeah. NPR. Now, you know, what's the... What's it's worth the, just mentioning there that, obviously, we had the autumn statement last week, and Jeremy Hunt said we're going to get a core Northern core, Powerhouse Rail. which commits us to the IRP, which is the reduced version, which I say at the time... Without Bradford. Without Bradford getting resolved and without Manchester getting what it needs to unlock and without new tractor leads, disaster. That, that is like reverse supermarket sweep with the leaders yeah. of the North giving back things they thought were already in the trolley. What are the implications for Platform 15 at Piccadilly Station? Out. I presume it's not going to happen. No. Right. So, in, so as a result, NPR will not make all the gains that we had hoped, the transformational nature of NPR. It would be very hard to deliver it. So, um, but NPR has, 
you know, what's the thing? Failure, success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. NPR was a line on a European map 30 years ago, the European Special Development Perspective, and it went Dublin, Liverpool, all the way across the middle onto Rotterdam and Antwerp, because as we all know people, the best ports in, in Europe are Rotterdam and Antwerp. Nothing that we've got here even approaches, and we can barely get Panamax up the up the Mersey. So, you know, sorry, this is my this is regional policy nerd 101. So fast trains between Liverpool and Hull and the enrichment of every point in between and the creating of more or less a travel to work area where it wouldn't be insane to wake up in Stockport and think, oh, I'll work in Liverpool or, oh, I'll work in Leeds, both of which are crazy things, but I've done them both. And I can tell you, Staley Bridge is not nice in the cold and the dark, mm. which, which it's dark now or not. Even with the buffet not open. Yeah, and that and the buffet only opens at five. Uh, five. Crazy. Anyway, sorry. So... Um, the transformational possibility of NPR to completely rethink the entire piece, we thought we'd had agreed post Osborne, right? So the, normal, so the conversation, particularly, in, and as you, as you, you didn't think um, Jake was uh, um, exactly overwhelming, then keeping this flame alive was difficult enough. I was right? trying to provoke you. I'm provoked. <laughs> um, he does that. The only way to provoke me is to talk about Newcastle United, so you know, just leave that there. Right, NPR in full, the transformational potential of NPR was always the... So it's so the Northern Powerhouses, NPR is a given, and what else? That was the conversation at the time. And, as a, and the reason that we're talking about railways is because I'm talking about institutions. Now, power, in its kind of purest sense, is the ability to change geography using infrastructure, right? So... As I was saying to you the other day, the Belt Road Initiative by China is a geo-infra-political statement that the future mm -hmm. is theirs. We can't even get a train to Leeds in this country. There is no clearer statement that we have given up than the fannying around, pardon me, of, of this. It's so obvious that NPR yeah. needs to be delivered in full 10 years ago, let alone 10 years from now, that... But what was lacking in the mix, there wasn't an institution for the North that was strong enough to be like, right, so we were building transport for the North at the, sorry, I'm shouting text, that's a disaster. So I, I get a bit excited about trains. You mentioned Newcastle, and that's what set you off. But the point is, is that, you know, uh, Northern Powerhouse Rail was, 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 was set down as 10 years ago as a given. Now, we had the autumn statement last week, and we get a hollowed-out version of that. Well, that can't stand. It's ridiculous. Yeah. When you say it can't stand, there won't be a Northern Powerhouse Rail, you know, or you're just going to get... Well, they should rename it because it's not going to be what was agreed. We need Northern Power Rail in full, fast, from Hull to Liverpool, sorting out Bradford, sorting out Manchester. Well, let's not bother. Let's just keep on pouring money into the Elizabeth line so you can have a step-free access, basically, from your front door to your workplace. I mean, come along. You know, we are not fools, and we're also not... Um, you know, your, you know, gentlemen like yourselves yeah, yeah. are urbane and well-travelled, and I'm sure you have been to our nation's capital recently. I have a bit. And I, it's I, bloody I, amazing down there. They've spent a fortune. I have. I even travelled on the Elizabeth Line from uh, Tottenham Court Road. And to... I hope as a northerner you were weeping the pure tears of envy. Well, I'm, I'm proud of our nation's capital, but um, I did think, and then I'm struggling to get my commuter train today. Amen. I mean, you know, from Stockport, yeah. Whether whether it's actually going to be cancelled or not, you know. And I'm I'm hearing that um, the Transpennine Express this December is on the verge of complete breakdown. So this is the point: is that so we've got you know 
And don't, don't get me wrong, there are stories about how and why the Elizabeth line, you know, there's, there's a world of interesting things about that. But it is no accident, people of the world, people of the North, that before you get the Elizabeth line, you get a mayor of London, a GLA, all the boroughs working together. And then with one rather loud voice, for lots of reasons that we know, they are able to build a railway, right? So the point is that infrastructure builds polities and polities build infrastructure. So you end up in this circular thing, right? The Greater Manchester family exists partly because it built the tram. The tram built the Greater Manchester family and you go round and round. So as I say, whether you're China and your world domination plan is reliant on infrastructure or whether you want to be able to get to work in the morning in Stockport, which frankly is much, much harder than it should be, you're reliant on institutions and a polity which is able to operate at the scale at which the problem needs to be solved. And you see this all over every European capital. You have the Grand Metropole in Paris, which is building a ring train right round the city. Yeah. You know, you build a policy to build infrastructure. And then again, and recursively that continues. I can see why. And I'm mindful of the fact that the, um, you know, the extra that we do, the Northern Spin Extra is a shorter podcast, but we've now decided to make this four and a half hours to talk about trains. Um, if we fast forward it a little bit, really, because... Sorry, Chris. No, don't worry, don't worry. Because we were talking, you were saying one of the big problems is that we've had this wasted 10 years where instead of kicking the Northern powerhouse forward, we spent, the Conservatives spent so long fighting amongst themselves over Brexit and we talked about the so ERG. Not, so when you asked about Boris, yeah. right, I just think the two things, it's no accident that Boris and Brexit, people love them, right? It's like Nike or something because they feel like nice words to say. Brexit is a nice, is a pleasing word in the mouth. Mm. I don't think anybody voted for, you know, Brexit has put us onto the course for, there are structural issues that Brexit ignored for the impoverishment of our entire middle class. You know, if you said Brexit means less for everybody in a few years time, it's looking a lot less sexy on the side of a bus. Yeah. And um, that's why, and, and as you know very well, um, the Labour Party will never touch it because if you say I'm pro-European or I'm anti-Brexit or something, then suddenly it's like you can't, you, you're not on the side of people who were hoodwinked, but they were hoodwinked. There's no, and there's no two ways about it because nobody alive is looking at their to-do list for this Christmas and the first 10 pages has got sought out whether we're a vassal state or whether we've got a trading relationship over the water. Not a person. What they're writing down is, ooh, energy costs. Ooh, uh, price of butter in the shops is three pounds. You know, like... The point was they were talking about some about things that didn't matter and they tried to make them seem like they did. And that's the gaslighting point. We have been gaslit as a nation into believing that Brexit was important. You know, I could list a, I could list a hundred political priorities and the, the minutiae of trading details wouldn't, wouldn't even make the top hundred things that matter to real households and real places. Yeah. What do you think of the news over the weekend that was kind of dripped into the Sunday Times that Sunak is looking at this Swiss-style relationship with Bring the it EU? On. I mean, the point is... No, why do you think he's doing it, though? Is he just well, test testing a policy because, idea? No, he's doing it because we are painted into a corner by this hard Brexit, yeah. which was the only thing that they could get through the Conservative Party yeah. so at the time. looking for a way out. Well, if the EU didn't exist, you would need to invent it now because with our growth, it's sluggish. We've been looking at a, an entire decade of, of what I've been splitting it out is stag fluidity, stagflation, but stag flattening. 
and the stag flattening is households and places beyond the greater southeast right so so though as a policy choice it is not a good one right it's not a good one and also i i don't know about you but i watch my television and i see the climate summit which is the whole world coming together to try and solve the wicked issue of climate change sorry i'll get less excited about the abrogation of our polity to talk about the things that don't impoverish us directly like but somehow the you can't say the brexit deal is not it doesn't make any economic sense right so i'm an economic development professional and have to remember all the time i sell data to people so they can be more interested in how to improve their businesses yeah. their communities their places yeah. but this is a, this is economic insanity the obr themselves last week said that our trade balance was 15% down on where it would have been had we not found some local friends to trade with come along you know and our gdp is 4% lower i heard that I heard that statistic 4% less than you know our gdp would be 4% higher if we stayed in the eu i want to ask a couple of questions um, you mentioned insanity earlier which brings me neatly onto liz trust um, if you had a, a party a christmas party and you were inviting liz trust and quasi quartank round that table what would you say to them what are your opinions on them as a former civil servant i wouldn't invite them to a party I don't think they're going to get many invitations this Christmas and I think they should be in the tower of London because impoverishing people kills people there the fact that they lit a touch paper and ran off giggling to a party full of hedge fund managers is obscene in the context of the inequality that we have in this country and and this is another point about why in purely economic terms right so let's pretend that they're nice people i don't know in purely economic terms they the in fact i was i've got i was on bbc news the day before the autumn statement saying this they were kind of gamblers it was kind of a, a an attempt but what they did was they applied the the um paddles for for cardiac arrest to a patient that was too weakened and too unequal within itself to take the electricity right mm -hmm. so when they did it the patient nearly died as in you know it was too much yeah it was that close wasn't it yeah and again if you are not in politics because either peace sort of internationally or prosperity domestically is the motivating thing then you don't deserve airtime or there's no way i would have those people at my party not least because i would have a ban on the door of anyone who had ever been to 55 tufton, tufton street i'm going to get my wife some lure pack for christmas it's the present that you just I literally it's just a gift of choice because <laughs> i think that's got the highest value if we fast forward autumn statement mindful of time okay you think we were gaslit with the autumn statement as well don't you well oh no i mean i think you know the point at which the big, the big boys come and they and they show you that they aren't just insane you you're pathetically grateful i mean this is the this is the deeper meaning of gaslighting isn't that you're lied to it's that you're pathetically grateful for the crumbs of comfort that you get so there's crumbs of comfort i mean i've got to say i'm very uncomfortable about what's been described over the weekend of Jer jeremy hunt there was a weird bit in the autumn statement so whilst the only fist bump moment as i said to you with npr albeit in a in a reduced form but that there was that bit where he said well we looked at um the at taxing private schools 
But then we realized that it would put 90,000 children into the state system and that would be end up being cost neutral to the exchequer, so we didn't do it. And, and then he kind of went, and then he moved on. And I just was like, that stuck out as a bit of a weird one. It turns out it was literally directly taken from a kind of lobbying document for, for private, uh, private schools that had made, done this calculation and put it conveniently in his box. Like, don't do that kind of thing, is all I would say, if you want to be taken seriously, because that is not sensible, grown-up, economics-led, data-led, evidence-based policy. So although it's a great improvement because things like the... You know, the confidence in the markets was because the OBR statement is there, even though it's appalling. And also, we're still being gaslit and told that we're more or less going to leap to 2.7% growth in a, in, a, in a hop, skip and yeah. a jump from here, which is complete fantasy. Yeah. We don't have any of the drivers or levers for serious growth in the autumn statement or in the mini or any nobody the plan for growth that people talk about i haven't seen a kind of compelling and convincing plan for growth since the our eu exit consumed the entire oxygen of the polity now that that matters a lot because and again back to the day job we give people the data to improve their businesses and we're really focused at the moment on businesses that have got the potential to grow 20%. And even in the context of the absolute desolate wasteland of, that government have given us, there are good businesses everywhere in this country that will achieve that. And they will achieve it through the sweat of their brows, as you know, people in, in this building and in your firm will attest to. Yeah. Meanwhile, they are doing it in spite of government policy on growth, not because of it. Mm. So Chris was trying to intimate earlier that you're uh, some kind of um, cuckoo in the nest, some sort of closet Fabian, doing the Labour Party's work at the heart of a conservative. You were doing the Labour Party's work at the heart of a conservative government. I think that's probably an unfair. I think that's, I, I wasn't that clever, actually. I mean, <laughs> your politics. However, but what I do want no to, to cut to the chase, Nicola. Um, what do you what do you think what do you think about what? Labour's messages are? And how do you think, um, for instance, Rachel Reeves did last week in the response to the autumn statement? Well, I mean, initially, that is a tough gig, right? You've got to respond and you've not seen anything. Yeah. So, so what she did was, so again, the, we were pathetically grateful in the autumn statement about the uprising of benefits with inflation because we, I mean, we people who understand that if you hadn't uprated benefits to inflation, you would be starving grannies on every street in the country. You know, the point is, with inflation, the, 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 the problem is, is that the, the, um, the, the mini budget behaved as if only inflation mattered. And no, no, it's all the wrong way around. The mini budget tried to pour oil onto growth and let inflation rip. And then the autumn statement act as if only inflation mattered. Of course, it stands to reason. It all matters, right? But the uprating of... But again, what Jeremy Hunt did very cleverly was he made decisions that sounded long-term and mentioned... He had the decency almost to laugh when he said to the end of the spending review period, because everybody knows there's got to be a general election in 2024. There has to be an election that year. So it's kicking the can along the road, really. And that was the point. The ele the, the, it was almost like, ladies and gentlemen, we are floating in space. There was a temporal and spatial notion to the um, autumn statement, which was, you know, magical thinking, magical realism, right? So you've got what you've got now, and that might be a bit ouchy because, as we all know, inflation is high, so your costs are going to be huge. Then you've got the end of the spending review period, which means 
give it to the next government and they're not fools. They know very well that that's not unlikely to be them, given all I've said about having not done very much for domestic prosperity or economic development for 10 years. You do not deserve to be returned as a government. You just don't. Not how you, it's not really how you win elections. Making everybody poorer and hating you. It's kind of, you know, odd strategy, really. That seems to have been the electoral strategy in, in recent years. But... I've completely forgotten what I was saying now. What, 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 I was what? asking you about how you thought. Just, just, oh, how did it go? Quick, quick oh, answer. how did Rachel Reeves do? <laughs> yeah. I mean, fine. She, 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 Rachel Reeves is, is um, a very competent person, but this is the point. There's been so little in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Yeah. You know, Rachel Reeves has an eye on um, poverty, inequality, and all of those things. So that was a speech she gave. Actually, because they'd uprooted benefits and retain the triple lock, but that's another podcast worth. Mm. Um, it was slightly the wrong response to the wrong budget, but she did what she did. She, Rachel Reeves is a competent, serious person. And that is exactly what Labour are seeking to do at the moment, is to make themselves sound competent and serious and to make the point, make the connection that if people gamble with our futures, they are not fit for leadership. And yeah. I just want to make one point, if I may, before we wrap up. Um, Rachel Reeve actually used to work at the Bank of England. Um, I thought actually she, she came across as well as she could have done, um, actually. Um, and I thought Jeremy Hunt came across as well as he could have done in the circumstances. But it's a bit like following a terrible football manager. You're going to appear much better because the previous manager was awful. Um, it, your, I mentioned, and Michael alluded to it as well, your politics as well. You describe yourself as the world's worst civil servant, probably because you're too passionate and too honest. You know, And you're not a Labour stooge, but if you went back to when you were 15... You were a member of the Young Fabians. And for those who don't know, the Young Fabians is the under 31 section of the Fabian Society, which is a socialist society. You must have been the youngest member ever. You were 15. No, you can say that. God, what's the thing about being young and left wing? If you can't be young and left wing, there's no hope for anybody. I'm like Wordsworth. Amen to that. <laughs> I think says, that, says the man who's been on a couple of demos, eh, Chris? <laughs> exactly. So, but what I would say, I mean, the other, the more sort of permanent relationship actually in my life was. Um, Compass, direction for the democratic left. Um, so yeah, look, I am clearly left of centre, but guess what? So is most of the country. We've managed to get into a place where our politics does not accurately reflect kind of the country we are. And that is so odd. You know, I, I, I'm perfectly happy to praise George Osborne's vision for the Northern Powerhouse. Yes, yeah, so would I. Because he's centre-right. You know, the point is, without wishing to be a centrist dad and have a T-shirt and have, you know, the point is, when you're young, extremes appeal to you, but the older you get, the clearer it is that there's common cause in the centre. And what we've allowed or just watched happen is extreme edges of politics take, take the space because it's been abrogated by sensible grown-up people. So I'm comfortable. In fact, if the question is, I think an Ed Miliband premiership would have had a bit of everything. And the big mistake was... When Cameron did the love-in with um, the, Lib Dems, the yeah. Lib Dems, that began this sorry state of affairs. So how, if you remember, there was a moment when we thought that, the, that it was going to be an Ed Miliband coalition, but Gordon Brown didn't resign fast enough. Now, that day possibly is the most portentous in British politics because the unravelling that we've seen for the next 15 years is a result of once Cameron had set his course on letting the ERG or as the what they were, you know, UKIP or whatever, the tail was wagging the dog, everything that's come since comes back to that. So yes, I am I am centre left. Nicola, the time's up. 
this is the bit where if I was to steal the end credits, Michael's contract would kick in and everyone likes to hear Michael at the end. But um, I, I think we literally could have gone on for another 20 minutes, couldn't we, really? But, oh, it's I mean, amazing. Unbelievable. Yeah. Really, really insightful, Nicola. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast and sharing your thoughts, sharing your experiences. Hopefully we'll have a, the occasion to speak again. Um, I'm just wondering how many people I've lost off my Christmas card list. <laughs> well, at least trust for one. The civil servants <laughs> are off, the Tories are off. To get, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'll get some Jake. It doesn't matter. Well, I'm definitely not there, I'm so very rude about him. But no, that's all now for this episode of Northern Spin. Just a reminder, we're on the Apple Podcast. We're on Spotify. Leave us a review. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. I always get this bit wrong, but it's at Northern underscore Spin 1. Thank you to our friends at What Media for producing this podcast, to Elliot Taylor for providing the music. My name's Michael Taylor. And thank you to Oscar Technology. And my name, as always, is Chris McGuire. Thank you very much.